There were things going on in that family behind the closed doors that the community certainly didn't know. A beautiful family, an elite education, a prestigious government position. It all sounds like he had it all. But in 1976, William Bradford Bishop Jr. went on a killing spree. The anger that he showed when he committed these murders is beyond even comprehension. He murdered his mother, his wife, and his three young sons, and then vanished, never to be found. I'm Leslie Ackerson. And I'm John North, and this is Appalachian Unsolved, the podcast. Our story starts in Maryland, an area called Bethesda, Maryland, where a man named William Bradford Bishop Jr. worked and lived with his family. And to outsiders, his neighbors, his co-workers, he was brilliant, he was hardworking, and he had a pretty impressive resume. Leslie, by all appearances, this should be a happy story. This should be a story about somebody who had a fantastic career as a diplomat, somebody who had three great-looking children, a wonderful wife who was an artist, a mom who looked after him and loved the family, clearly was an up-and-comer. I mean, he had so much going for him, so much that you would think, this is the kind of person you want to be. I mean, a Yale education alone would have been something one could strive for and brag about if you got it. Somebody who had great promise and went on to great things, but as we know, that's not at all what happened in this case. He, he was fluent in five languages, he was very narcissistic. We don't look at him as the kind of a special agent, James Bond type, but he certainly probably considered himself that. John, you and I traveled to Washington, D.C., to Maryland, Montgomery County, where this all happened, and talked to the current sheriff, Darren Popkin. 44 years later, he and his team are still re-examining this case because it's well known in the community. When was the first time you ever heard the name William Bradford Bishop? I first heard the name William Bradford Bishop literally the day that the homicides occurred. So I was 14. I had some friends that lived literally right down the street from them. He remembered it as a kid long before he got into law enforcement. And from the moment, basically, that he got into law enforcement, it's something that he thought about. And I think he made it his mission. If the people who came before him couldn't solve it, he was going to do it. And he's still trying to do that to this day. And you mentioned the family, John. He had a lovely wife, his high school sweetheart, Annette. His mother, Labelia, lived with them in the home. And then there are three boys. There was Brad Jr., Britton, and Jeffrey. They were 5, 10, and 14 years old. He was very affectionate and close to all of them. I think the oldest boy that who was named after him, he nicknamed Pino, wherever that nickname came from. They seemed to be very happy. They would go to the beach. They'd go skiing. The neighbors never thought anything else other than that this was a perfect family. And the homicides came to really as a shock. We went by the home as well that they lived, a very nice neighborhood, somewhere that looked like a happy place to live and thrive and grow. If you can imagine back in the mid-70s, it would have been kind of the perfect place to raise your family. Uh, easy drive into Washington if you work for the State Department. Great location, good schools. It was a nice place to live. You know, the house was kind of tucked off the street, as you remember. You kind of had to walk up the drive to get to it. But it was a nice place. It would have been a, a great place to come home to. 
On the outside, the community and the people in school and any other people that they ran into at their country club and other things, they portrayed this perfect family, but behind those doors were, were not so perfect. He insisted on having family dinners. He insisted on that they would all be there. He insisted on that if he was speaking, it was actually very tense at those family dinners, not very comfortable. This strikes me as a story where we have somebody who was haunted, who was in turmoil, who was dealing with demons that we don't know the full extent of. Somebody who tried to do the best he could. He tried to meet all the expectations of what was put on him, and yet there may have been some kind of a fatal flaw that ultimately did him in. Bishop enjoyed this very controlled, orderly environment, and that was changing. We actually got a chance to read some reports that came from his diary. That we know of, this is only the only insight we've really got into what may have been going on in his head. It's not a lot. It does offer us something. There's one passage in particular that sticks out in my mind. It would have been written in 1967, was recovered after the crime, almost 10 years before he did what he did, but I'll just read a little bit about it. And it almost sounds like he's trying to give himself a pep talk. I am getting better, he wrote. I am on the threshold. I recognize now that to twist my accursed confines, I must develop a continuing and constant sense of surging for confidence, awe, and becoming, and love. This is my greatest challenge, for this has always been the great impediment to freedom and total self-realization, to burst the bounds. Who knows exactly what that means, but it sure sounds like he's saying, I wish I could just be me. As the years progressed, his cursive in the diary got a little more erratic, and he kind of changed personality. He became more intense. He became more self-absorbed, um, and people started to notice that things were maybe changing a little bit. There was quite a bit of really dark imagery, dark writings about how him not being successful, about him not uh, making it to the level that he wanted to make it to. I think he also became more secretive. Uh, so he was clearly doing things he didn't want people to know about. For example, it looks like based on what you and I were able to determine in our reporting, he may have been having an affair on the side. It sounds like during his travels, which took him to Europe and Africa, that during one trip uh, over to Europe before the killings that he was seeing a woman, all of that is not very smart if you're in the Foreign Service because it's a high-profile job and the State Department pays attention to what you're doing. They pay very close attention to what you're doing. And he was playing a dangerous game, but he'd always kind of been like that. He'd always sort of lived on the edge. He wanted to portray this family that was kind of carefree, had lots of money, and actually they were running out of money. Mrs. Bishop wanted to go back to work. He did not want her to. He wanted her to be a stay-at-home mom and raise the kids and for whenever he needed to travel. And so there was definitely some disagreement and some hostility between Mr. Bishop and, and, and his wife. And whether that led to a point in his life that everything was going to come crashing down, that it wasn't as perfect as he was portraying to all of his friends and co-workers and his neighbors, you know, until we get Mr. Bishop back here, I can't tell you for certain, but that appears to be the only motive that we can even kind of go down that road that his life was falling apart. Now, they certainly, you know, don't get to a point of that we can understand how anybody could ever do some hor just horrific act like this. 
So let's go to the day of the crime. March 1st, 1976. William Bradford Bishop goes to work. Bishop was at work that day. According to his co-workers, was not very happy that day. He had recently learned that he was not promoted, he told his supervisor he was not feeling well and he needed to leave. That was a lie. We don't know this, but we can surmise that by this point he already had murder on his mind. On the way home, he makes a couple of stops, and these are really important to what follows next. First, he goes and gets some money out of his bank account. He gets cash, $400, which would have been a lot of money back then, 40-some years ago, and he stops at two other places, and I'm sorry to say he's getting the instruments that he's going to use basically to kill his family. He buys a hammer, and at another place, he stops and he buys a shovel and he buys some other things. And as we learn, these are the tools he's going to use in his plot. He fills up the family station wagon, a Chevy Malibu, with gas and drives home. When he got back to the house, the boys are in bed and he comes into the house. And his wife, I think, we learned was on the floor, maybe doing something, reading or working on something. Investigators tell us it sounds like she was first to die. He took the, the hammer that he had bought and beat her over the head and killed her in, a, in just a uh, terrible, terrible, horrendous way. He wanted to make sure that he took care of her first. And then sadly, as horrific as it sounds, the father went in to kill his sons. The, the boys were already in their pajamas. They were all in bed. He went room by room and beat them to death one by one. We know based on the, the medical examiner's report when he was actually taking the hammer to them that he was hitting them so hard that the blood splatter that, that got onto the ceiling and on the walls was actually reverberating or, or being thrown back after he was committing the homicides. The blood pattern will show you that he goes back to the front of the house. It was then he killed his own mother right at the entrance to the, the doorway. The anger that he showed when he committed these murders is beyond even comprehension. He then loads the bodies. He doesn't leave them. He loads them in the back of the car that he'd been driving earlier, the station wagon, grabs those tools that he'd picked up. He takes the family dog with him, still alive, Leo, in the car, and he leaves town in the middle of the night. As you mentioned earlier, John, the house is kind of tucked away. It's a little bit of a long driveway. There are some trees and some bushes. Wouldn't be easy for neighbors to really see someone going in and out of the house unless they were really looking for it. The neighbors have evidently not heard a thing. Um, they were pretty close, but they didn't hear anything. No, no suspicions were raised. And yeah, as you say, in the middle of the night, he loads up unfortunately these bodies in the back of the station wagon and the dog we can only wonder what the dog is thinking but animals aren't dumb especially dogs they know something when something horrific happens a dog's going to know about it you have to wonder what the dog was experiencing he heads down south to north carolina to a place that only he must have known about it's not a place that's like just off the interstate it's a remote place it had to be where he thought if he was going to hatch a plot that's my next move Early that morning, he finds a logging road. And when I say this is a logging road, this is not on a map. Even to this day, if you were to go down there, and we sent investigators down there, and even to this day, it's not on a map. 
This is not a, a road that unless you were familiar with that area or had you had been down there before, you never would have known it was there. This is not something where he was driving down the road and said, hey, that looks pretty rural, looks pretty wooded. Let me drive down there and let me, let me check out. Maybe I'll just bury the bodies there. He had to have been there before. There was no way he could have found that road. This place is so remote that it's the smallest by population county in North Carolina. It's that small. If you remember where the Wright brothers practiced uh, launching their aircraft, Kill Devil Hills, it's not too far from there. It is a place where you just have to know where it is for you to go to the trouble of finding it. And was, this was, I think I remember, that was kind of a sandy road way off in the woods, and he drove off into the, into the woods with his station wagon. And that's when he creates a grave for his wife, his mother, and the three boys to dispose of what he's done. He gets down the road, takes out his shovel, digs a grave, a shallow, it wasn't a deep grave, but it was a shallow grave, but it was deep enough to be able to bury all five of the bodies. It looks like he tried to dig a pit based on the photos we saw. He dug a pit, but, I mean, it's not easy to dispose of five bodies, to be blunt about it. Probably, he, we know he didn't complete the job uh, all the way, and then he decided to set them on fire. There was a park ranger who saw, who was actually on fire detail that, that particular uh, morning, saw the smoke coming up from that particular area, sees that there's a fire going on, he gets some emergency folks in there to try to put the fire out. The fire, by the time he got there, it had been a pretty dry part of the year. It had spread to about a three to four acre area, so it, it, the fire had spread. He actually then saw this just unbelievably horrific scene of three young children and two women who were, they weren't burned beyond recognition, but they were burned badly. And, and that, that's when the um, North Carolina Bureau of Investigation were called out. One thing that stuck out in my mind was, I think the ranger later told authorities that he must have just missed Bishop because the fire was that fresh, it was not far off the road, and it just felt like it was still going. And for a fire like that to still be that fresh, it had to have been just minutes since Bishop had said it and then taken off in the station wagon. The ranger notices a woman's leg, and then they would call in police who would later uncover it and find the three children and the two adult women. How macabre is this site? You're out in the middle of nowhere, and you come across a fire, and you look more closely, and it's the remains of Let's see, one, two, three. No, there are more than three bodies in there. There are a total of five. Some of, you, some of them you can sort of tell, a woman's leg, but most of them it's like, what is this? There was no identification on any of these people. There was no way to identify who they were. Bishop, as brilliant as he was, as smart as it seemed his resume said he was, he left some important stuff behind. He left his tools that we talked about in that shallow grave. Mr. Bishop left the gas can and the shovel at the scene. There was a small sticker on the shovel from a hardware store here in Montgomery County, Maryland called Poke Hardware, P-O-C-H Hardware. 
the investigators from North Carolina came up here to try to figure out who these people were. You have to wonder if he had, if he had grabbed the shovel up, if he had grabbed the hammer up, if he had taken those things with him and driven off, that would have earned him even more time. But yeah, the tools themselves were the best clues that the authorities had to figure out what in the world had happened and where these folks might have come from. Other than that, there was nothing that would readily say, oh, these people just came from Washington, D.C. While authorities are out there in North Carolina trying to figure out how these bodies got here, Bishop's been driving. He's got a head start, and he's going to a new destination, right? So he's on the road driving. Authorities are trying to figure out what's happening in this rural North Carolina pit. Back at home, neighbors are getting worried. It's been a few days. It's March 8th, and they're noticing they haven't seen the bishops in a while. Some neighbors were starting to get concerned. There was newspapers piling up in front of the, the home. Mrs. Bishop had a Volkswagen Beetle that had been sitting in the garage, I'm sorry, sitting in the driveway untouched for days. It hadn't moved at all. Neighbors noticed that. They noticed that there had been no movement in the house and they got concerned and so they called the police. They called 911. Uh, officer goes to do a, a check didn't take more than a step to get inside the front door to see that something horrific had occurred. We've seen the crime scene photos, John. Bishop didn't exactly clean up the house when he left. The evidence of that gruesome murder was still left behind. Even though there weren't any bodies, the blood was spoke for itself. It, just walking through those rooms, and especially in the boys' bedrooms, that's all you needed to know to understand that something really horrific had happened. And imagine how the police must have thought when they walked into the bedrooms and thought, all right, there clearly have been homicides here. Where are the bodies? So police in Maryland think six family members have somehow been murdered and are gone. They're including Bishop in this right now because they just see the blood. Meanwhile, back in North Carolina, authorities still at the pit and Bishop on the road. Let's talk a little bit about communication back in 1976. Phone lines, emails, faxes, it took a lot longer to make connections of we've got missing people, here's five bodies in North Carolina. If you had the discovery of five bodies in a grave, uh, it would be slow to get out. The way it would get out to the rest of the nation would be on the wire, the Associated Press uh, wire, for example, or UPI. It wouldn't be something that would instantaneously be on your television set two hours after they were discovered. It would take time, and it would be considered more of a local story and not a national story. So people would have assumed, oh, who are five people from North Carolina, for example, that may be missing? We just didn't have the instantaneous idea of, of communication and information that we have these days. It was a slower time. It may have made the evening news around uh, North Carolina and the biggest cities that day after the discovery. I kind of doubt it made the Washington, D.C. news. It, it took a while for it to filter out. Once the word got out that there was five homicides, we were able to put together that the bodies in North Carolina were the, 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 the Bishop family from here, from Carter Rock, Maryland. That little tiny clue of that sticker on the shovel finally helped them fit the pieces together and they realize we only have five bodies in this pit. Someone's missing. Yes, somebody was definitely missing the father of the household and 
I am sure, I think it's safe to say at that point, they had a very good idea of what was going on, but unfortunately they still didn't know where he was, and they had to put together by that point that there were two family vehicles. One was sitting in the driveway at home in Potomac. Where was the station wagon? Brad Bishop was indicted for the five homicides, and that's when the race began, to find where he had gone. We already said he had a head start. So our next sighting would come 500 miles away here in East Tennessee. It was 17 days later, the next basically lead came in that was a confirmed lead. The station wagon that, that Mr. Bishop was driving was located in the Great Smoky Mountains in Elkmont Park. A National Park Ranger reported finding that station wagon 17 days after the killings. Parked at Elkmont. John, tell us a little bit about what Elkmont is and for the Smokies, for people who aren't familiar about that area, it covers a lot of ground. There are a lot of great hiding spaces. The park itself is, you know, 520,000 acres, so there are lots of different places that you can hide if you want to. And a lot of people do come to the park, and they do hide. Or they make the decision they're going to end their life in the park. And we also have people who go missing and are never found in the park. Fascinating that he chose Elkmont. Elkmont is a very unique part of the park. It's an old, it's now, nobody lives there anymore, but it's an old community where rich families, once upon a time, mostly, used to go, often from Knoxville, to spend uh, summers because it's cooler up there. Uh, you, they could build their own cabins, and often they did. Uh, you, you lived in a little community up there. You had your own place. You have to wonder how he knew about Elkmont to pick that place, but he did. That's where he went, and that's where the uh, station wagon came to arrest. Investigators would look into that station wagon. They'd find blood, a shaving kit, and dog treats. But no bishop. He was not with the car. No bishop, no idea where he was, no real tracks, no real dog tracks, some suspicions maybe some ideas that he was going in another direction, but nothing was really certain in this case. Once he walked away from the, the station wagon, he vanished. That's not where the story ends. Brad Bishop is an internationally sought fugitive. Today, he'd be 83, and he once graced the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Part two comes next. Federal authorities are still assuming that in 2019, Brad Bishop is still alive. And so far as we know, he may very well be. He potentially could be in a cabin up in somewhere as a recluse with a beard, because I don't discount anything. Next, we explore where he may have gone, who may have seen him, and what may be happening to him today.